Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for October 19th, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional... Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for October 21st, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many people. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional and ancestral territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with a brief update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. I will now turn things over to Dr. Vipond for his daily analysis on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Thanks so much for having me back, everybody. Um, we're just going to go right into it. And I'm just bringing up my, my tweet thread. I actually got it out early today, thanks to uh, the fact that uh, it's it's been a very normal day with um, with the media release. So can we bring up the slides and we'll just go through that? So we'll just start with the daily numbers uh, today or yesterday, actually, 781, which... Um, Oh, I didn't put the decrease in there. It's about a 13% decrease uh, from last Thursday's 926. Um, and if you were paying attention yesterday, there was a bit, a little bit of an uptick in the numbers. It, there hasn't been any in this downslope to this point. So that was new, but it's nice to be back uh, on the downslope again. Um, <clears throat> I suspect both the lower decrease today and the little uptick yesterday have everything to do with Thanksgiving. I know there's been a lot of talk about whether Thanksgiving, there's going to be a big Thanksgiving bump. Remember, Thanksgiving is a single day of or a couple of days of transmission. Um, and then all the same policy levers that were in place before that were driving the curve down remain in place. So we may get a little bit of a bump, but I'm not concerned that there's going to be this rapid expansion just based on that one holiday. Uh, positivity is down uh, 6.53 uh, from last week's 7.48, and the seven-day average is 764, down from 887. Um, the reason why I didn't put the percents in my tweet thread, for those of you um, curious at home, it's because I wrote the whole tweet thread, then it disappeared, then I had to rewrite it, and so <laughs> obviously a little flustered. Um, hospitalizations. Um, we continue our downslope. It's still a very, very slow decrease. It's, um, you know, the cases per day have been dropping about 25% uh, week over week, much, much slower. Um, you can go ahead, uh, sorry, a couple slides. Yeah, there we go. That's where we're at. Um, so the last real day for numbers was probably Monday where we were at about 762. And then the last couple of days there have been some dramatic drops, but there will be revisions to that uh, over time. Um, so, you know, we're dropping anywhere from five to, to 15 a day. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, at least we're on the downslope. Next slide, please. ICU continues to slowly drop. Um, there was a revision to Tuesday's numbers where it uh, revised from 205 to 203, but that was a massive drop uh, of 15 pa uh, patients that day. That's gotta be the, the largest single day drop in ICU uh, admits. Um, since the beginning of the, the pandemic. So that was a very good day for our healthcare system. Um, overall, there's been a seven-day decrease of 13% amongst the ICU, another four down today to 201. Uh, two new PEDS admits overnight, one in the five, uh, five to nine range, one in the 10 to 19 range, and eight deaths, including one person, uh, one male in the 30 to 39-year-old. Next slide, please. That's the uh, deaths there. Next slide, please. And you can see how massive this curve is, um, very similar to the second wave curve, very different from the third wave curve, which just goes to show we're, we're not out of this yet. And we need to continue to vaccinate and we need to continue to have NPIs or public health measures in place. 
Next slide, please. Still predominantly a disease of the kids, and I know this is controversial, but I sure wish we had um, closed the schools for a period of time um, to put in place better protections. We're still double the rate of everybody else. Um, and the rate of the kids, if you, if you can see, is still um, at about the level where the other ages kind of peaked out. Um, so uh, still a lot of spread amongst the kids, and we should really... Uh, work on protecting our kids a lot better than we have been. Um, next slide, please. And this is your recurrent reminder that uh, this is a, a rural wave predominantly, and you can see how much worse it is in the rural areas than it is in the urban areas, still double the rates at least, if not more. Um, you can see that uh, the the North has tripled the rates of, uh, of Calgary right now. So uh, still a massive problem. And I think that's it. You can close the slides. Just have a couple of things to mention before we get into the meat of things. Um, the first is I just finished watching the Dr. Hinshaw presser. Uh, she's become quite the politician. Um, when asked if there were any preventable deaths in this wave, she pointed to the fact that uh, the unvaccinated, all of them were preventable deaths that could be prevented by vaccines. Um, I just like to point out that they were also preventable because they didn't need to happen. We did not need to remove all of our restrictions, cancel TTI, test, trace, and isolate, um, open up the schools without any protections at all. Um, and I'm just astounded that she can point blank pivot away from taking responsibility for these preventable deaths that lie on her shoulders. I, I, I continue to be astounded by this government and the people in it that will not take responsibility for their policy decisions. And then again, I see Councillor Sean Chu today saying the exact same thing. I will not resign. I will not take responsibility for my actions. What is happening to our society where people will not take responsibility for their actions? If I screw up at work, if I kill a bunch of patients, please, please ask me to resign and I should resign. Um, Decisions matter and, and people should take responsibility for those decisions. I'm just going to shake my head. And I'll continue to, in that same vein, to point out that our neighbors to the east in Saskatchewan are tragically suffering from uh, poor governance as well. And, and the failure for the, the, the Mo government to take responsibility for the amount of tragedy that's happening there right now. Uh, please send them good wishes, uh, support. Uh, all of those physicians there, all of those patients, um, a special shout out to Dr. Alex Wong, who's really been an outstanding uh, voice of advocacy in that province. And I, I sure hope a whole bunch of Saskatchewan doctors step up to advocate beside him because, you know, your patients deserve it. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Michelle and uh, we'll get today's uh, briefing underway. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. We often hear a lot of those blanket statements out of our politicians, things like protecting the most vulnerable, which I feel can often lead to a lack of clarity around whom is actually being impacted. When we talk about things like anti-vaxxers, we only seem to talk about those who are actively choosing not to be, as opposed to the other barriers that may be in place. And so we tend to just not have any clarity around whom is actually being impacted and what the impact actually looks and feels like. Oftentimes, those blanket statements can be really othering. And without further unpacking, we miss the opportunity to see the challenges facing Albertans whose lived experience and day-to-day -day life has been significantly altered by the pandemic. Additionally, these othering statements play into that narrative of, well, it isn't affecting me or my family. Enabling people to shrug off the severity and distance themselves from the situation, creating this false sense of security for folks who don't consider themselves or anyone they know at increased risk. We've seen this narrative play out time and time again here. I still clearly remember during the first two waves being reminded that the average life expectancy in Alberta is 83 and the average age of COVID death is 82. Now it is 79, but I don't know. I felt a lot of, so don't worry, Alberta, most of you will be fine. And I think that this mentality, no, I know, this mentality has cost the lives of over 3,000 Albertans, left countless humans with long COVID, and closed our eyes to the actual people whose every choice 
has been fueled by ongoing community transmission. Closing our eyes has allowed numbers to dominate instead of names. Lives have been lost and summed up based on comorbidities instead of human lived experience. This narrative has prevented folks from sharing their current reality with a broad section of Albertans. And this is one of the main drivers of our topic today. Today, we will be exploring the ongoing and disproportionately severe impact COVID-19 is having on Albertans who are living with a suppressed immune system, transplant recipients, and medical professionals whose universes involve medically suppressing the immune system for the overall health of themselves, their loved ones, or their patients. This group of individuals are one group of many whom have felt the pandemic more severely than most, and I hope going forward we will have more opportunities to explore an even broader range of disproportionately impacted Albertans due to COVID-19. Similar to our panel on surgical postponements, I am joined today by a panel of medical experts and folks Albertans, like me, who are able to share their lived experience of the ongoing crisis. So I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Peters, Dr. West, Nurse Booker, Tissa, and Lindsay into our conversation today. Thank you all so very much for joining us and giving us your time. Um, I would just love to go around the screen, um, and if you could share with folks at home just a brief introduction, um, and yeah, that would be absolutely amazing. After which, we'll move into some individual statements, and then on to our group discussion and Q&A. Um, so I will turn things over to Dr. Peters to introduce herself. Great, thank you. Um, I'm Anthea Peters. I am a hematologist uh, at the Cross Cancer Institute in Edmonton. So I treat um, patients with leukemia and lymphoma. I'm, I'm uh, Lori West. I'm a pediatric transplant cardiologist and transplant uh, immunologist. And I take care of children who need transplants or who have had heart transplants. In, and I'm uh, uh, also in Edmonton. Hi everyone, uh, it's Rianne Booker here and Jasper, and I've also got uh, my daughter Sadie. Um, I am an oncology and palliative care nurse practitioner. I've got more than 20 years experience in oncology. I'm the current president of the Canadian Association of Nurses in Oncology. Uh, and incidentally, we've uh, got our 33rd annual conference happening right now. Uh, and so COVID-19 and the impact on cancer care is uh, very much a topic of discussion at our conference. Hi, my name is Tisa Perra, and I'm a liver transplant recipient um, since 11 years, and I'm here to talk about the lived experience, um, and I've been vaccinated like three times, so thank you. My name is Lindsay Kemp. I am the mom of George, who is a two-time heart transplant recipient uh, before the age of four, and I'm hopefully here to advocate for vulnerable families, what it means and how COVID has impacted us. Thank you all again so very much. As we move into individual statements um, around how all of this has impacted your practice and daily lives, we will start off with a Pop AB active community member who I know most of you at home will recognize. Um, Nurse Booker, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me, uh, and I'm excited to hear from the others on the panel today as well, so I'll try to keep this relatively short. Um, when I think about the impact of COVID-19 on people with cancer, there are a few relevant considerations. So we know from peer-reviewed research that patients with cancer are at higher risk of adverse outcomes, including death after COVID-19 infection. Uh, Meta-analysis published in April of this year that included 15 studies and more than 3,000 patients from the UK, Europe, the US, and Canada found that the overall case fatality rate of COVID-19 for patients with cancer was 22.4% with a 95% confidence interval of 17 to 28%. And some studies reporting case fatality rates in the neighborhood of 50 to 60%. And by comparison, the case fatality rate of COVID-19 for the general Canadian population is approximately 1.8%. So you can see that the risks for people with cancer are substantially higher. Uh, and particularly people who are receiving cytotoxic uh, treatments like chemotherapy, um, but even people who have history of 
cancer and some types of cancer in particular may be more at risk of adverse outcomes um, after COVID-19 infection. We also know that screening for cancers was put on hold in many provinces across the country, uh, and this may mean that cancer diagnoses have been delayed. Uh, we've also seen, particularly in Alberta, that diagnostic cancer surgeries have been postponed. Uh, and delayed diagnosis is worrisome because it may mean that the cancer could progress and that when finally diagnosed, someone could have later stage disease and this could impact the curative potential. Uh, we've also seen delays or interruptions in cancer treatments, including surgeries. Um, again, the worry would be that delaying treatment could result in progression of the cancer. Uh, and you can imagine that might be uh, physically distressing in terms of symptom progression, but also profoundly psychologically distressing to know that somebody's treatment uh, or diagnosis have been delayed. Um, I know that oncology teams have worked very, very hard to keep people's treatment on schedule. And there was a paper published uh, just in September that looked at seven different uh, provinces across the country and what the impact had been on, on cancer care. Um, and really systemic therapy didn't change that dramatically. Um, and you know there were changes to other things like screening and, and uh, the shift to virtual care in some centers. Um, but as much as possible, uh, you know, the teams endeavored to keep people's treatment on schedule. Um, so, you know, of course, we, we know that here in Alberta, especially cancer surgeries have been delayed. Um, and, uh, you know, I really hope that the province is tracking these delays and, and trying to track also the, the outcomes. Um, and, and that might be hard to measure or assess with any degree of certainty, but I think the people of the province really deserve that information. Um, and I think that there should be plans to ramp up screening going forward. And we did see that last year in many provinces where after that initial uh, first wave or two, there was an increase in screening across the country. Uh, so we need to really ensure that that continues to happen. Um, and we really need to have, um, you know, uh, intentional, tangible plans to mitigate the potential harms that may be caused by reduced uh, screening, delayed diagnosis and treatment interruptions. Um, and we also know that there are ongoing risks to people with cancer. Uh, we know that some people with cancer, particularly those with blood cancers, may not mount an adequate immune response to the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and for people undergoing hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, they may not even be able to receive the vaccine until three months after their transplant. Um, and so, you know, when we think about abandoning things like test trace isolate, uh, my worry is that people with cancer and those who are immunosuppressed will continue to be at heightened risk. And, you know, I've heard through, throughout this pandemic so often that people are upset with their rights being infringed upon uh, by having to wear masks or get vaccinated or limit um, interactions and things. But, you know, I always think about what about people with cancer or those who are immunosuppressed? What about their rights? Don't they have the right to go to the grocery store without having to continually put their lives at risk? And don't they have the right to timely diagnosis and treatment for their cancer? Um, perhaps a silver lining in all of this, we've seen a shift to virtual care and, and that was abrupt for most of us. Um, but I think what we've learned from that is that a lot of what we do in oncology can be provided virtually or remotely. Um, and there may be huge benefits to patients from doing so, such as reduced travel time, no exorbitant parking fees at the hospital, less of a need to take time off work or arrange childcare, and probably one of the most important is re reduced exposures to things like COVID-19, uh, influenza, et cetera. Uh, we also need to ensure that we do that right, that we ensure access to and equity of care. And so going forward, I think there should be a concerted effort to ramp up cancer screening. There should be plans to build up capacity to deal with a backlog of surgeries that have been postponed. There should be planning now for increased psychosocial and mental health supports for patients, their loved ones, and also for healthcare workers. Um, but I want to just really assure everyone that there are countless oncology clinicians across Canada and throughout the world who are dedicated to ensuring that the needs of people with cancer are met, COVID-19 or not. Um, and as I said, you know, we've got our annual uh, oncology nursing conference going on right now. A number of the sessions are all about how we can best serve our patients and make sure that their needs are being met throughout this pandemic and beyond. So very exciting stuff happening there. And just to reassure people as much as possible that there are so many people out there that are wanting to do whatever we can to make this better for you. And I'll pass it over to the next. Thank, thank you so very much, Nurse Booker. I'm going to bring Dr. Peters in um, to share some thoughts and perspectives on how the last 21 months has impacted your practice and those you advocate and care for. Hi, thank you so much. Um, thanks so much for inviting me and Rianne, that was excellent. Um, very um, good overview um, of, of how uh, COVID-19 has impacted cancer as a whole. Um, I, um, I am a, a hematologist, not a medical oncologist or radiation oncologist. 
Um, so my focus is in, in patients with blood cancers. And, um, you know, so I'm not going to focus on, you know, um, surgical delays, because certainly the, the delays have, have had and are going to have an impact on um, more so patients with solid tumors. Um, but in, in my world, it's a different sort of struggle. So the patients that we um, treat are immune compromised, both from their cancer, as well as due to their treatment. Um, and, you know, they are highly encouraged to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, but despite sort of following the rules and getting the vaccine, um, you know, unfortunately, through no fault of their own, their, their response to that vaccine is not going to be optimal. And um, that's particularly true in patients that are on treatment, but, but in particular, those that are on a type of treatment called an anti-CD20 antibody. And um, just pulled some numbers. This this actually applies to about 850 patients in Alberta. Um, so it is a large number, and and actually it's even bigger than that because if you think beyond oncology, even um, neurology, rheumatology, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, many many autoimmune diseases are treated with those types of drugs. Um, and so th this, this is a big um, issue in Alberta and, and in every jurisdiction. So patients don't really respond well. They don't develop that protective uh, response to the vaccine. And unfortunately, as Rayanne pointed out, their risk of death from getting the infection is higher. And I've seen um, even specifically in the hematologic, um, the blood cancer population, it's uh, around 30 to even up to 50%. Um, and so it's quite a scary high number. So when we talk to patients, we emphasize that they, they must get the vaccine, but they also must realize that um, their response to the vaccine will be poor. And therefore, they must rely on their, their immediate bubble their, their family and their, their immediate friends, their children to get the vaccine. And that sort of protective bubble or protective environment will, um, we hope, go a long way to protecting them. Th these patients are very scared. They've, some of them have been in um, sort of quasi self-isolation for almost two years now because they're afraid to go out. Um, and, and most families are willing to, to go as uh, go get their their vaccine for these family members but it's it's been quite um eye-opening that there are there are family members that are not um willing to do that and i've seen a number of people with um sort of terrible rifts in their families because of of this issue disagreements on on um the safety of the vaccine and and who's willing to get it and who isn't so it's been quite sad to see and even patients themselves that are um, sort of too worried about side effects, uh, too worried about things that they've heard on social media, um, worried about the, the, the progression of their disease or, or the fact that the, the vaccine is, is not going to um, um, uh, be nice to them because, because of their disease. So I just want uh, another point that I wanted to make is just to reassure people out there with um, blood cancers that these are safe. Uh, these vaccines are safe. Um, and I, I know that they've not been tested in uh, specifically clinical trial settings in patients with blood cancers, but there is a recent um, uh, publication from a Lithuanian group who looked at um, eight over 800 patients with blood cancers compared to a control group, and they found extremely minimal um, adverse events. So, so this to me is very, very reassuring, and I've shared that information with many patients. Um, uh, this week, was it this week, I think, that Colin Powell unfortunately passed away from, from COVID-19, um, uh, the, the former Secretary of State of the U.S., um, unfortunate situation. Um, I 
I thought I would bring that up um, because it's known that um, Colin Powell had multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer. It's known that he had the vaccine. Um, some people are tempted to conclude that the vaccine therefore does not work. Um, but, you know, I think this is a, a, an example of somebody who, um, who, you know, did what they could to protect themselves. But unfortunately, as many of our patients, it just, uh, it, the vaccine doesn't give them enough protection. Um, and, and so I think, you know, if anything, it strengthens, um, the, the point that, um, you know, people around them, people, you know, in their community need to be uh, vaccinated. Um, and then I just wanted to finally say that uh, I, I think uh, through, you know, you know, if I think about what has affected our patient population in terms of the government's um, planning and their, their opening of restrictions too soon, I do think that's had a direct impact on our patients. Um, I mentioned ours don't tend to go um, for surgery, so that really hasn't had an impact. But unfortunately, we do um, we stem we we provide patients stem cell transplants, which is an extremely immune suppressive um, treatment and process. And um, unfortunately, up to about twenty patients in uh, Edmonton alone have had to delay um, those transplants or have had them cancelled, and that's partly due to, um, you know, unfortunately, the patients themselves contracting COVID nineteen. Um, but that's also been the case due to um, the the very, very um, strained ICU capacity. And so without that ICU capacity, we can't ethically start a, a very uh, immune suppressive treatment without that cushion, knowing that the patients, if they get very sick, could be supported in the ICU. So unfortunately, there have been um, direct impact uh, in up to 20, uh, 20 patients um, just in the last few months. And uh, at least five, if not more of those patients, unfortunately, have died. Um, and so um, that's all I had to say for today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I will bring you back into the conversation shortly, Dr. Peters, as we get towards our roundtable. Thank you so very much for sharing your perspective and your experience. I'm going to bring Dr. West in now to share some reflections on what the last 20 months has been like for her practice and those she advocates for. Thank you so very much, Dr. Thank you, Michelle. And um, thanks to all the panelists. Um, I think as, as um, as we, we heard earlier in the presentation, sometimes we hear the numbers and we focus on the numbers day after day. But uh, for those of us that um, are seeing the impact of this pandemic on the most vulnerable in our communities, I think it's really important that we hear their stories and share their stories. And I'm very grateful that they have agreed to share some of these perspectives today. <clears throat> Transplant recipients and as well as patients who are awaiting transplantation are very vulnerable, um, be, not only because of the high community transmission um, and the overloaded healthcare system, but as we just heard for um, patients with blood cancers or those receiving bone marrow transplants or stem cell transplants, um, these patients, patients who receive an organ transplant, uh, whether it's heart or liver or lung or kidney, uh, require lifelong immunosuppressive drug therapy in order to prevent rejection. And this um, renders them, just as we heard for uh, patients, for example, with myeloma, this renders them at much greater risk of acquiring COVID-19 um, and unfortunately a much higher risk of developing severe disease because their immune system is suppressed and can't respond as well as people who are not immunosuppressed. And therefore um, they may be anywhere from 10 to 20 more times likely to die from COVID than a non-immunosuppressed than the rest of the population. Uh, obviously this places them at great risk. And furthermore, because of that, in, in that immunosuppression that they take uh, that's life-saving for them, 
um, as we've just heard, they also don't, though, uh, although they may uh, be able to take um, the vaccines, if they're of the age group um, uh, that can receive the vaccines, they don't respond as well for the same reasons. And so they get inadequate protection. Um, and we've now seen on several occasions um, the, the, the terrible scenario of doubly vaccinated patients uh, who pass away from this now preventable infection, um, including patients who received transplants very recently, just a few months before that, and were just beginning uh, the, the lifelong journey of, of understanding um, the hope and, 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 and recovery that come from um, moving from a, a state of organ failure into a state where with a, with a replaced organ and an, and an expectation um, that transplants bring to people because this therapy is very successful at restoring lifelong um, quality of life and, and good function. Um, but we also have patients who are many decades uh, after transplantation and um, Live, you know, living active lives, contributing to society, and so on, who are also placed at great risk for um, for infection, uh, and doubly so because they cannot mount the same immune response to the vaccine uh, or to the disease because of their immunosuppressive drugs. Um, I would just have to say as well, uh, given the events of the past few months, um, patients who are in need of transplant or are listed for transplant. Um, as well as um, um, those who have received transplants are really, they really are disproportionately affected by the current pandemic. Um, the, the, the hospital system is overwhelmed and staff uh, and, and resources have been redeployed and re reallocated. Um, and that means that we can't take care of transplant patients as well as we would um, normally be able to do. We have less access to the testing that they need. Um, we, uh, we, we, we aren't able, therefore, to um, provide as, uh, as detailed care as we would like. Uh, it uh, has hampered our ability to evaluate and assess patients for transplant. Um, there are less, and just as we heard from Dr. Peters, there's less access to intensive care beds, um, which means that um, transplants may not be able to even happen. Um, and these intensive care beds are needed not only to take care of patients sometimes before and after their transplant, um, but, but uh, also for um, times when they get ill with COVID. Um, and also uh, we have less access to donors um, that we need to perform transplants. And indeed there was a, a, a story that we heard just a few weeks ago from, from uh, one of our um, uh, patients who was, on, who was on a kidney transplant list and had a scheduled transplant from a living donor uh, was in the, called into the hospital for his transplant and then just the morning at which it was supposed to happen, it was, it was unfortunately canceled. It was not able to be performed because of um, the lack of... Um, the lack of accessibility. So in the current state, um, this will continue to result in unnecessarily, unnecessary and preventable deaths of patients with organ failure who are waiting for transplants, who are waiting for life-saving transplants. Um, as far as um, um, our, uh, what we can and do advise our patients, we advise them, uh, of course, to, to take care, to take all the precautions necessary to prevent exposure, um, meaning that, uh, that they're often remaining in, in kind of a, a quarantine, a lockdown situation. Um, and we also then, as you'll hear from uh, our, our two other panelists, they'll tell you in their own words what the impact is that that has had on their lives. Um, uh, you know, somewhat ironically, because uh, they've pursued transplant and enjoyed um, the, you know, the 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 impact of of again from going from severe organ failure to the joy of being able to to to, to feel healthy again. Um, so we urgently need to reduce community transmission. Um, and so our patients are less exposed to the risks um, and we need to normalize the hospital capacity so that we can get back to practicing um, and providing access to transplants uh, and, and, and for our patients when they need them. And, when, uh, and, and particularly in the case where we have deceased organ donation and an organ becomes available, that may be the only chance that that, that, that patient 
um, with heart failure or lung failure or liver failure will have to access a transplant. It can't be rescheduled. Um, they really await that unpredictable event um, that comes with our ability to, to, uh, to, to offer opportunities for disease donation as well. So I will just, um, um, I think it's, uh, again, as I said at the beginning, I think it's really important to hear their voices, to listen to their stories, um, to understand that our communities, uh, that all of us in our communities have a moral and civic responsibility to, uh, to not just think about um, protecting ourselves from, from uh, this what you know lifetime uh pandemic situation but to offer protection uh, through the very minimal um, requirements that are needed with public health health measures to ensure that our vulnerable patients also have the best chance and so i think we'll hear from um, our two other panelists just now who can say in their own words what the impact has been on them thanks very much thank you so very much dr west i am going to bring um tisa into the conversation um, thank you. Thank you for having me here today. It's much, much appreciated to have the opportunity to share my story. Um, you know, prior to COVID-19, I had a full life. I traveled, I in fact traveled to 27 countries after my transplant. Um, I volunteered in the community. I play a flute. I was part of a community band. And I also was, I am a cyclist. I competed at the national and the world transplant games. Um, so I was very active involved. I had a full life. And now since COVID and since March, 2020, I have been essentially in social isolation. I've been on quarantine because being an immunocompromised patient with an organ transplant, that means that my risk of death is much higher than the general population. So it's important to me to reduce that risk. And, you know, like with the advent of um, vaccines and with vaccine, vaccination came out, I was very hopeful that, um, you know, the vaccines would work and we would be able to get on with living normally. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, studies came out and they were showing that organ transplant recipients have like a 50-50 chance of developing antibodies. And we really don't know who has enough antibodies to be protective against COVID. And, and so that means for us, we need to keep some of these public measures in place in order to exist, coexist in society. And so when all the restrictions were lifted this summer, it was devastating. It was really devastating for me because this means I can't even safe, no longer safely go to the grocery store and buy food for myself. This meant that if I wanted to go to a doctor's appointment or some other um, um, like massage therapy, for example, I would have like, there's no protection, like there's no rules in place anymore. It was like a free for all. We're open like it's 2019. Um, but that's that was not the reality for me. Um, and I've been, you know, I was really depressed and anxious about what happened this summer with um, being open for like it was 2019. And um, yeah, that was not the case. And I haven't been able to get back into society at all. And I would like to get back into society. It's been a really lonely journey and um, it's been very isolating. And, um, and there's rifts in my family too. I do have one family member who's not vaccinated. They don't want to get vaccinated. So that means I effectively cannot have them a part of my life because we cannot even physically be in, in the same space because the risk to my life is too significant to allow that to happen. So in the concept, I need to be surrounded by fully vaccinated people and have low transmission in society to be able to coexist and be able to do the things that a normal person would be able to do. And, and the fact that, you know, like I have an invisible disability, my immune system is suppressed, um, but that's a protected right. And I, you know, like just, and I, you know, I am deserving to be able to be out and about. Um, the other thing too, that's come out um, quite a bit and is the misinformation on Facebook. So naturally I'm 
I'm pro-vaccination. Um, I think that's the way we're going to get out of this scenario in this situation. And I was just surprised at the, the amount of hate that I encountered on and harassment that I encountered on social media. Um, people that I thought were, were my friends um, were harassing me on social media, trolling me. And, and it was really devastating and hard because, you know, I'm not a member of the general population. I have this very unique situation where I am have to isolate even more. I, it's like a ongoing lockdown for me for the last 20 months. And so um, one person actually said to me, wrote on there, actually more than one person said, just shut up, lock yourself up at home and collect a government check. And I was like, wait a minute here, I'm an able-bodied person. I, I pay taxes, I, I have a career, like, I, I, like I'm part of the society. So I, I just think there needs to be more awareness that we're, we're here and we're not what you think you, what, what you think may think we are, like we are able-bodied people post-transplant. And so I just wanna drive home that, you know, like I think we need to um, maintain some, some of these COVID um, safety protocols and also really make sure that we have enough people vaccinated in society. Um, and yeah, and that's um, pretty much everything I have to say at this point. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much, um, Tisa, for being with us today. I will bring you back into the conversation here shortly. Thank you. Um, next, I'd like to bring Lindsay back into our conversation. As Lindsay mentioned off the top, um, she is the mom of an adorable tiny human. As she begins to share her story momentarily, we are going to pop up some pictures of her adorable tiny human. I preface this just so folks at home know that the adorable tiny human is depicted with some medical assistance, and I know for some people that can be disturbing. Um, but he's so cute. You have the most vibrant looking tiny human um, given everything. Um, thank you so much, Lindsay. I just wanted to make sure that folks were aware that tubes were coming. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Lindsay Kemp. Um, I am the mom of George and he's had two heart transplants before the age of five. Um, and I really wanna to talk today about what it means to be a vulnerable family or in the vulnerable population and how COVID has affected us. Um, so no one really expects to become a part of the vulnerable population. George was, he was born healthy. I had a healthy pregnancy. He was healthy at birth. Um, it wasn't until he was about four years old that um, things uh, were wrong. Um, his first transplant was at nine months old. Um, and then unfortunately, he went into antibody-mediated rejection and we needed to be relisted. So um, we had another, we had to live in the hospital for eight months at the Stollery. Um, and we were very fortunate to receive his second transplant in January of 2020. Um, during our journey living in the hospital, you quickly learn what it's like to be a vulnerable family. Um, the Stollery is full of them. Once you receive your diagnosis, you get education in the hospital of how to manage your condition and specifically how to keep your transplanted gifts healthy. Um, there are things that are constantly emphasized to make sure that everyone around you can keep you safe. Things like being vaccinated. George, um, since he got his first heart before he was a year old, he was not able to receive his MMR and varicella vaccines because they are live vaccines. Um, they tell you make sure everyone has their flu shots, make sure everyone stays home when they're sick, hand hygiene, everything we're learning about COVID. Um, so before George, I have to admit, I, I really didn't give this much thought. I wasn't against vaccines. I was vaccinated, but our family had the privilege of health, so I went to work sick. Um, sometimes I didn't get my flu shot, but after being in the hospital, it really showed us that this is not just about protecting us, it's about protecting others. Um, hundreds, if not thousands of children in Alberta have conditions which make them vulnerable, but they are manageable. Uh, and I think the term vulnerable is being lost during this pandemic, um, thinking that vulnerable means terminal, and it doesn't. These are manageable conditions and these kids and adults are expected to live relatively normal lives. Um, so the first point I really want to say is we have to stop 
diminishing the life of someone who passes away because they have a condition um, it does not justify the death and they would have lived had they not caught COVID. George is an active and healthy and happy child. He's not a comorbidity. So I really feel we need to stop dividing the public this way and just announce if someone has passed, not if they have a condition. Um, so how has COVID affected our lives? George received his transplant, his second transplant, one month before the world shut down. Obviously, we were frustrated because after being in hospital for eight months, we finally had the hope that we were going to be able to move forward and live our lives, enroll George in sports and in music. Um, but everyone in the world had to stop, so that was okay. Um, but by the fourth wave here, I would say uh, it's been very lonely and very isolating as a vulnerable family. Um, I think people kind of forgot or just were tired of living with COVID, so they just wanted to move on. And so we were kind of forgotten about. Um, once the Open for Summer campaign on July 1st happened and all the restrictions were removed, it was not inclusive to the vulnerable population at all. Um, it kind of felt like we were a burden. Um, it was less safe for us now to go out and do things because there were no safety nets anymore. Um, so for example, our family had huge plans for the fall. I would go back to work, you know, I'd, uh, I'm a music teacher, I would play in bands again, my husband would start hockey, um, George would start school, but uh, we had to wait because community transmission became so high that the risk was just too high that we could bring something back to George, even though we're fully vaccinated. And well, he's obviously not. So um, that was the worry. Um, the biggest disappointment for us has been the decision to put George into online kindergarten. Um, we were enrolled in person and we were so excited after him fighting for his life. But the numbers during the summer just kept going so high and getting to dangerous levels that the day before school, um, we called the school and said we have to switch to online. It just doesn't seem worth the risk right now because we didn't know what was going to happen to the children. Um, so um, right now it was unfair because vulnerable kids were kind of put in a position that they had to stay home. And we were told that, well, you have the online option. Well, George didn't fight for his life to go online. He fought for his life to go live. Um, and then for some of our transplant friends, they didn't even have the option to keep their kids at home. I'm very lucky that I was able to stay home. Um, but they had to send their kids and they were terrified. Um, and no parent should be terrified to send their kids to school. Um, other ways that we were affected, as I said, I had to postpone going back to work. Um, again, transmission was just too high. And then also I had to stay home with George now that he's online. Everything is outdoors. George doesn't have any idea that he's, you know, maybe missing out on being enrolled in things, but um, we've worked really hard to keep him busy, but in the safest way possible. It's a constant risk versus benefit analysis. Um, our families have been very understanding, but uh, it can be hard because when we want to get together inside, um, we've asked them if they could be tested just so we can be safe. Um, our hobbies have changed. My husband, like I said, didn't start fall hockey. Um, I cannot play music right now. Um, we just, we have to wait until numbers get back to a safer level that we know we won't be bringing anything home to George. So I guess what I'm here to say is to ask everyone to remember that um, you don't know when someone around you is vulnerable or if they have someone who's vulnerable in their lives. Uh, we really need to start showing some compassion and working together as a community. Um, because until community transmission is down, it'll make safe, uh, society safer for everyone, that we can go back to living our lives. Um, and I said it multiple times, these kids did not fight for their lives to live in a bubble. Um, we deserve to be out there. So we just really need your help. It really takes a village. And that's what I have to say. Thank you. Um... So very much, Lindsay. I'm going to bring everyone into our conversation now. Um, a lot of the questions that I had pre-grabbed, you all naturally answered in your um, various statements that you made today. Um, for our medical folks on the panel, were the experiences that both Lindsay and Tisa were sharing similar to what you've been hearing in your practices? Uh, I could start maybe. Yes. I mean, this is, this is universal. <laughs> uh, there isn't a transplant patient or a patient waiting for a transplant or a patient or a transplant patient's family uh, who hasn't expressed the same concern, the same frustration. Um, uh, I was very much struck by how Lindsay described 
um, when it comes up that there's an underlying condition, as if this is, <laughs> as if this is, uh, you know, an explanation and, and a reason why one shouldn't be vigilant and compassionate and so on. Yes, I completely agree. Um, both Tisa and Lindsay, uh, I'm sure many, many of my patients can relate um, to your situations. And, you know, I really was struck by the fact that your lives are completely different now because of COVID. Um, and my patients are quite similar. They're completely vulnerable. They're hiding, they're scared. It's, it's not fair. Yeah, what really strikes me is how much you've all had to accommodate your lives for everyone else. And I just think that you have been going through so much already that it seems like I can't get my head around how it's such a stretch for people to do all they can to protect you. It would be such a little thing for all of us to do everything we can to protect people who are going through this. It, I just can't get my head around it. So I just want to thank you so much for sharing your stories and uh, just know that there are people out there that will do whatever we can to protect you and your loved ones. We talk um, on this show frequently about people's comorbidities and the faces of those and how they are not a comorbidity, how they are a person. Um, Dr. Vipond has expressed that he would be listed as a comorbidity. I'm not sure if I have ever expressed that I would, but I would be. I'm on a TNF inhibitor. So I have been functioning in a very similar universe to both UTSA and Lindsay in terms of the fact that once a month I inject myself to suppress my immune system and I stay in a very tight little bubble. And I know for me, one of the things that has been so challenging is not feeling like I can make decisions around my own safety because of the lack of information. When both of you brought up the ending of the test tracing and isolating in the summer, that was a, a very severe call to action, wake up for myself as a human because I could no longer make any informed decisions about what would be safe for me. Um, are you two feeling like there is an end to a fourth wave hope around the corner? Or are you feeling like this is our new normal forever? I sure hope there's an end to this. <laughs> like there has to be. So I don't even want to answer that with negativity. So that's why I wanted to ask because I've never I never ask anyone. But those are sometimes the things that go in my head is that me in my little studio with my blue background and talking to you guys is going to be my existence. I have to say some day some days I'm pretty hopeless and other days I am hopeful. Um, what I really have to hold on to is historically pandemics have always ended and the key is getting through it. So uh, I just need to get through this and hopefully one day I can live my life again, um, which I really want to do because I'm really grateful for the opportunity um, to live and have the gift of life. One of the things that you both brought up, um, particularly Tisa, which has been a concern of mine as well, is I'm a third doser too. Um, I went and got my th third dose when I was eligible once biologics became part of that. Um, but that lack of knowing about your own personal antibody levels. And I'm, Lindsay, I know that George is not eligible yet for vaccination. Um, but that uncertainty, I guess, to our medical professionals, do you think there will be a time and a space when folks who are immunosuppressed or immunocompromised will have the opportunity to regularly be aware of what types of antibodies they're still holding? Or will it always just be across your fingers if you're immunosuppressed and hope that you've retained some? Well, it, it, it's more complicated, unfortunately, than just measuring antibodies. Um, it, it, while it may be reassuring to do a blood test and see that you have 
anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, it doesn't tell you how effective they are. It doesn't tell you whether they are neutralizing antibodies. Uh, it doesn't, it, and, and so you may be falsely reassured and let your guard down by having a test that shows that you're a good antibody producer. The other thing that it doesn't test is the other arm of the immune system, which is cell-mediated cell immunity. And there is some recent evidence out um, that shows that there can be hybrid immunity where the antibody levels are low, and yet there are cellular responses against SARS-CoV-2 that can also be protective in a different way. So it's, it's a very complex, the immunology around vaccines and their responses, as well as around immunologic responses to the virus itself, are really complicated. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Tisa's put in the chat as well, there's wonderful research coming out virtually all the time, um, but from the Johns Hopkins group, from Dr. Dori Sigev, um, who's looking at some of these things. And we have launched a study called Prevent COVID here across Canada that is also looking at immune responses to vaccines, specifically in transplant patients. Um, and, and we're measuring both arms of the immune system, both the antibody production and whether those antibodies are not only specific for COVID, but are, there, are they also neutralizing antibodies and how strong are they and so on, as well as cell-mediated immunity, which is the other arm. So of course, answers will continue to come, um, but it's not gonna be as easy as just an antibody test, unfortunately. Anyone else have anything they would like to add to that? It was a question that was floating around online as well. So thank you so very much, Dr. West, for um, diving a little bit deeper into that. I, I wonder if I could just add too that um, we, you know, we think about it, it is unprecedented the amount of global collaboration that has gone into studying this disease. I mean, unprecedented. Um, people working all around the world with each other, developing new collaborations, not only at the epidemiology of, of this virus and the pandemic, at the immunology, at the infectious diseases, at the virology and so on, but remarkably quickly because of those collaborations, which I, I applaud my scientific colleagues around the world on, have resulted in a, a time frame um, of developing new science and new knowledge that um, has, has been nothing short of remarkable. Of course, the disease has changed quickly as well. And so it's always changing. But my sincere hope is that those collaborative scientific pathways will continue to move forward and keep up with this pandemic as it, you know, as it goes through its next iterations and hopefully diminish, <laughs> diminishments. That's an excellent um, point. I just wanted to add um, that the, the the scientific community is, has really risen to the occasion in a remarkable way. Um, but secondly, that we are learning about this at, in real time. And I think the public doesn't maybe appreciate that as much as as we would like them to. Um, you know, there's often comments on social media and so on about, you know, how could they not have known that, um, you know, this, 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 but, you know, the truth is that it's a new virus that we're studying for the first time. And, you know, there's so much unknown, but it's been amazing to just see uh, all the, the thousands of publications coming out um, and, and all the work that's being dedicated we have um, some scientists, some some clinician scientists at the Cross that are doing similar work to uh, document response to um, uh, vaccination in patients that are specifically on um, uh, anti-CD20 antibodies as well. Um, and I think they're part of a national collaboration um, to do that work. And many of our patients are asking for, you know, real time. Uh, results, individual results that could tell them how protected they are. And unfortunately, as, as you say, Dr. West, it's just not that simple. Um, it would be nice to have, but it's just not that simple. And, and just to jump in too and, and expand on what Dr. West had said about the worldwide collaboration, I think that you know, maybe that again, too, is a silver lining and that we can look forward and uh, harness some of that for other major health problems that we have. And, you know, we've seen a lot of momentum in the global oncology sphere as well. And 
um, you know, we've learned a lot about making our world a bit smaller and working together and sharing resources and collaborating. So, you know, going forward, I think there's lots to be learned about how we can do things better um, and, and maybe not go back to normal, but go forward to a better normal. And the science will push us, you know, the science, the science will push the progress. And I think the, you know, that leaves us with a hopeful message that science, you know, has evolved a lot over the last year and a half, and it will continue. And we will eventually reach the end of this, um, as Tisa pointed out, um, and it's the science that will get us there. So we need strong support for science. We need to continually address misinformation in science um, because it's not, uh, you know, it's definitely not helpful. But uh, if we can finish on a hopeful message, I think that it is that the science will get us there. And I think that that has truly been proven to us time and again during the last 21 months. I mean, even how science was able to use its past learning to create a vaccine. So many, so many with so many fantastic outcomes because of the years of research that had gone into other things before and that global community coming together to create such great advancements. The understanding of a new pathogen that as Dr. Peters has mentioned or new virus that as Dr. Peters had mentioned has changed so many times over the last 21 months. But there's still such leaps and bounds of progress being made thanks to the contributions of a community that on a daily basis, I am amazed is still finding energy to fight um, because of things like that misinformation, because of policies that eliminate test, trace and isolate. Um, I am constantly overwhelmed with that hope of just really wonderful humans making some really wonderful progress. Um, Lindsay and Tissa, thank you so very much for taking time to share your experience today. As I said at the beginning, I'm hoping that we will have more opportunities to explore other stories of the reality of different groups of humans and the impacts that they have faced during the last 20 months. And to our fantastic team of medical experts, thank you so very much. Um, your time is beyond valuable every day, but particularly at this moment when risks in general are so high. So your willingness to be here and share with everyone watching at home Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, Could I just add one more thing that, you know, please just back to the, you know, what you just said, the, uh, you know, I'm saying science will drive this. It's the policy that needs to be driven by the science. You know, the science will inform the policy and the policy must be based on what the science is. So we need to believe in the science and, and, and work around the science to inform policy. So thank you for you know, remembering that because the input of, of a forum like this is really to help us, to help us provide the science and the human stories that should drive policy. Thank you so very much, Dr. West. That was an, an excellent summation. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, and at that note, it is beyond our time today. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Um, in an effort to preserve our volunteer resources, we are going to attempt to appear only once next week. I say attempt as a realist who knows that the situation changes frequently. But currently, the coalition is aiming to be back on Wednesday with a panel exploring under 12 vaccination approval potential and potentials for that rollout. Um, we'll have some pediatricians on hand to answer your questions and hopefully a volunteer from AB Vax Hunters to demonstrate the vaccine registration pro process. As Dr. Vipon mentioned at the beginning, um, our provinces are all interconnected and Saskatchewan is in a serious healthcare crisis right now. 
While our system is still functioning beyond its usual capacities, their access to care is so severely impacted at this moment in time that I cannot even find the words to articulate my fears for everyone in that province. So if you have family in Saskatchewan, friends, old acquaintances, reach out to them this weekend. Inspire them to connect with their elected officials and demand immediate action We know individuals and grassroots initiatives can make a real impact, and we know that they can accomplish so many things, and we know that they can save lives. So let's make sure that they know that as well. Every single one of them matters, and they deserve policies that will protect them. So until next time, stay safe, Alberta. As always, COVID-19 is airborne, wear the best mask you have access to, and vaccines really do save lives. 